Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 168, covering the week of May 6th through May 10th, 2019. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute, like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. If you go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org, you can find all our social media buttons there. You can also give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook. And when you get that free ebook, you'll get on our email list and you'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. You can support the Abbeville Institute by going to abbevilleinstitute.com forward slash support, or you can click on that button. Actually, I'm sorry, it's not forward slash support. Just click on the button at the top of the page that says support, excuse me. And when you click on that button at the top of our webpage at abbevilleinstitute.org, it says support, um, you can donate to the Institute. And of course, we exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you do like what we do, if you like our podcasts, our website, our programs, consider a tax-deductible donation to the Institute. It is a great way to help us out. You can also download our mobile application. Just go to your app store, whether it's uh, on Apple or uh, you know Google, wherever you, wherever you get your apps. Uh, it is free of charge, so you can get your app, have the Abbeville Institute on the go. It's a great way to keep in touch. You've got, of course, the podcast in there, all of our lectures. It's a, it's a mobile connection to the website. So if you're on the go and you just want to have the app on your phone, you got the little Abbeville Institute logo. It's really cool. Just click on that, and you're right there to the Institute. So it's a great way to do that. Also on that uh, support button, there's a button that says Shop. Click on that. You can get all your Abbeville Institute apparel. It's embroidered, good stuff. Uh, so we got T-shirts and polo shirts and hats and all kinds of wonderful things uh, for your Abbeville Institute fan. Whether it's you or somebody else, you can get that great way to support the Institute and show your pride in what we do and show that you support our mission to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Also, uh, we do have our summer school coming up. So if you want to get in on the summer school, there are very few slots left. And here we are. It's not even end of, end of May yet. Uh, beginning of May. Uh, we've already got uh, most of the summer school full, so if you are interested in going to summer school, if you're a student, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a student or you know of a student who wants to go, we do have scholarships available. So um, we're really interested in getting some students involved. So contact Dr. Livingston. All the information for that is available on the website in the middle of the page. Just click on that thing that says you're invited. Gives you his email address and his phone number. So go out there and do that. Uh, get in on that summer school. It's going to be a great topic. It's the New South and Reconstruction. A lot of fun. Um, and so it's a, it's also a, a nice place. And uh, people go down there for camaraderie and to meet like-minded folks. So uh, and consider going to the summer school. It is really a grand time. Okay, all that said, let's talk about the material for the week. Um, this is an interesting week. And, and I want to start actually with a story because it fits into uh, a couple of the pieces that that um, we've done this week. But uh, one of our listeners sent me this, this story, one of our supporters, and he said, um, in 1984, I had visited China on a professional exchange tour. The following year, being executive in, a Dallas, in the Dallas city government, I was asked to escort two visiting Chinese engineers to see Dallas. I toured them to the universities, government buildings, the Kennedy assassination site, took them for an ice cream, and attempted to clarify that the wealthy people in Dallas uh, who, who the wealthy people in Dallas were. At one point, they energetically conveyed to their interpreter questions about a park we had driven past. It was Lee Park, complete with a statue of Lee mounted on Traveler and a reproduction of Arlington Mansion. They had recognized Lee on site and wished to stop. We did so. 
They took photos of themselves at the statue and each and had each plaque read to them. The interpreter explained that they had been taught in university about Lee being a great military leader and a man of honor. Their greatest amazement was that this statue existed even though he lost. Such is not the case in the People's Republic of China. So here we have these Chinese tourists, and he, he followed up and said the, the interesting thing about this uh, was that uh, this happened uh, just, uh, just a few years after the extremely oppressive Cultural Revolution. The Chinese knowledge of the U.S. was much more limited than today, and so no one I had met uh, had even heard of Dallas in 1984. This made their knowledge of Robert E. Lee all the more surprising. So this was 1985. These people came to Dallas. And the year before, I mean, you just had the, the Cultural Revolution in China not long before this. So he's saying these people have very limited knowledge. They didn't even know Dallas existed, but yet they knew of Robert E. Lee. They knew of Robert E. Lee. And here you have these Chinese tourists coming over. That's the thing they want to see. They want to see Lee. You see, and there was a, a, a um, I was looking at a website the other day about travel areas. And it was, you know, places to go. And one of the places was Richmond, Virginia. Go to a Richmond, Virginia, all the history there. And you want to know what the image was? This is a mainstream travel site. It was an image of Robert E. Lee, a statue of Robert E. Lee. Nobody goes to the north to see any, I mean, look, they might go to Boston to see uh, the, 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 the uh, Old North Church. The, you might maybe you know, go see some of the sites there in Boston, um, the USS Constitution. They're going to go to Philadelphia. But the fact is, People go to the South just to see this stuff because it's unique. They go to New Orleans. They want to see the Confederate statues. They want to see Robert E. Lee in Virginia. They want to see these things. They want to see the Southern Plantation homes. This is unique. They go to the South and they want to tour in South Carolina. They want to go to Drayton Hall. They want to see the Confederate history. They want to go and see the little, the, uh, little uh, Confederate museum there in downtown Charleston. They want to see these things because that's what makes the South unique. They want to see the statue of John C. Calhoun. They want to go to John C. Calhoun's grave. It's the most visited grave of a vice president in the United States, John C. Calhoun. Now, of course, Calhoun was more than that. But this is what people want to see. You take all this stuff down, you're removing a vital part of the Southern tradition. People want to see it because it's unique. So what you have, and this is... The piece on Wednesday by Gail Jarvis. Are Confederate monuments prohibiting social justice? Are they preventing, quote-unquote, social justice? What he's asking is, are these people really that stupid that an inanimate object, a monument, is preventing some type of social justice? Is it preventing anything from happening? Has it ever prevented anything in the civil rights movement? Has it prevented anyone from putting up a statue to anyone else? I mean, uh, <clears throat> has it prevented uh, people from putting up uh, the Martin Luther King monument, for example? Has it prevented anyone from having a, uh, a celebration of civil rights? No, it hasn't prevented any of this stuff. So essentially what's happening is people are getting, uh, they're, they're getting their diapers full and they want to cry and they want to whine and they want to pout. And it's not just Confederate statues now. There was, a, there was an article uh, detailing all the different areas around the United States that are now looking to take down not just Confederate statues. We're going after George Washington. We're going after Thomas Jefferson. We're going after founders of universities. I mean, look, the Thomas Jefferson statue was taken out of Florida State University. Now, if you don't understand how, how egregious that actually is, and the founder 
of the school is being scrubbed from the school because he was a slave owner. And of course, there's the, he was uh, Jefferson's relative, right? I mean, so you have, you have the founder of Florida State University being scrubbed from the school, essentially, because he was a slave owner. This is ridiculous. It, it just boggles the imagination. You, I mean, 1984 wasn't supposed to be a guidebook. It wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be a manual on what to do. It was supposed to be on what to avoid. It was supposed to be, hey, George Orwell saying, look, this is what's happening in the Soviet Union. This is what's happening in the Eastern Bloc. We don't want this to happen. We don't want to erase history. Uh, we, don't want to, uh, we don't want to have to go out and contextualize everything. And, and, I mean, Winston's job in that book was to rewrite history to make it more palatable and agree with the standard interpretation by the government, which is essentially the establishment interpretation of everything now in America. Government schools, government propaganda, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We don't want to do that. It's not supposed to be a guidebook. This is exactly what's happening, though. I used to assign 1984 to my college students, and uh, they couldn't even understand it. It shows you how bad. This was, this was a decade ago, and it's even gotten worse now. They wouldn't understand any of it. Because they don't read anything, and they're just told what to think about different things, and then they get to chant, and they get to uh, uh, yell slogans, and they get to to uh, uh, yell pejoratives at people. This is what Twitter's all about, and Facebook essentially. I mean, put anything out on. It, there have been studies now about the the left bias of Twitter and how Twitter is not a real view of America. Same thing with any social media. Uh, it's not a real view of America. Most Americans don't think don't think that way. Uh, the majority. So the problem is, as Gail Jarvis points out, these monuments aren't doing any of this stuff, but yet they're seen as an, an inanimate object. Is seen as a block to people existing. I'll never forget. There was an article written about um, the uh, the fact that Alabama, the state of Alabama, has several community colleges named after John C. Calhoun. I mean, this was, this was when, when Calhoun College was being renamed at Yale. Uh, a little twit from Yale came down to, to Alabama and said uh, he wanted to meet with these people in the uh, state system and wanted to talk to them about, um, this was in a, 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 a publication in Alabama, wanted to talk to them about their, uh, the names of these schools. And so he met with some administrators, met with some people, met with a history instructor there and said, you know, well, what do you think about this? And they well, I mean, you know, we just, we just work here. You know, this, this is not a big deal to us. And they actually met with a little, uh, with, a, with a student there, an African-American student at, uh, at Calhoun, one of the Calhoun colleges. And he said, does this, does this bother you that you've got this name on the school? And uh, she looked at him and said, there's really people in, in the North that, are, that can't go to school because of the name on the school? Are you serious? Are they that stupid, essentially? Are they that stupid? I just want to get an education. I just want to come and do my work. I don't really care what name is on the building. Uh, this is, I mean, it was beautiful. I don't, you, you're telling me, she didn't say the stupid, but you're telling me that there's people, essentially what she's saying, they're this stupid in New England that can't get out of their own way because of a name on a building? Are you serious? That's just stupid. And this is what people should be called out for this. Are you stupid? And clearly you are. If these things bother you this bad, I mean, are are you that emotionally insensitive? Are you that emotionally uh, emotional hypochondriac, as as uh, Tom Woods has said? Are you an emotional hypochondriac? 
Are you that? Are you that? Are you in that state of arrested development that something hurts your feelings and so you can't exist? You have to curl up in a ball and oh my gosh, it hurts my feelings. And what hurts your feelings about it? We're gonna we're actually gonna run a piece in a, in a couple of weeks. Uh, on uh, uh, somebody's gone out and done extensive research on for the Silent Sam statue and the ceremony that was in, involved in the dedication and what people actually said there and what that statue was actually about. And so uh, it's a wonderful piece. I can't wait till it's, till it's there and you can read it. It's really good. Um, but regardless, this is what we've got. We've got people that are in a state of emotional arrested development. So they're not preventing social justice. They never have. They never have. But again, this is 1984. This is Orwellian, and this is what we're dealing with in, in America today. So it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Now, we have a lot of other great material on the website, though, this, this uh, week. Uh, the first piece is Guerrilla War from the Pulpit, and it's written by John Cho. It was actually published in Southern Partisan Magazine uh, back in uh, 2009. But it's about J, uh, I'm sorry, J.L.M. Curry. If you don't know anything about J.L.M. Curry, he was one of the, as you said, one of the major political figures of the Old South, was really interested in Southern education uh, in the post-bellum period. And, of course, uh, state-funded uh, public education. Um, and Curry was actually, he took, the, he took the oath when the war was over, but he could never hold any political office. So he became an ordained minister. And he waged a war through the pulpit. And this is what's interesting. He said, look, I'm going to go to the pulpit, and I'm going to talk about God's will. I'm going to talk about the, the influence of Christianity in the South and what's happening. So you had people like Thornwell, and you had people like Dabney, of course, doing this. But then you had Curry. Um, and Curry was blasting Reconstruction from the pulpit. And he was also writing histories. Um, he was also writing histories, which was interesting. He wrote, for example, a history of Ireland. And um, he wrote a biography of Britain's famed Prime Minister William Gladstone. and uh, Well, not a history of Ireland, but Gladstone, essentially. And he talked about the Irish question. And he said, look, the Irish question is just similar to the Southern question. He said, quote, Ireland is a paradox. It is claimed that, that rules and motives applicable to other peoples cannot be adjusted to the Irish, the North and South do not harmonize. Catholics and Protestants are like alien races. Hates and antipathies, rather than friendships and agreements, have dominated. Loyalty, law and order, intelligible terms have been misplaced. Loyalty to the sovereign and imperial patriotism have been the exception. Secret leagues have taken the place of open political warfare, assassinations, boycotting, proscription, absenteeism, governmental distrust, oppressive discrimination, coercion, shadowing have been varying aspects of the mobile kaleidoscope. He's talking about what's happening in Ireland, but he says the same thing happening in the South. This is what's happening in the South. So it's a really interesting piece, and to get into Curry and what he's saying and how he decided to wage war. And uh, I have a, a friend, a, a colleague, who is um, he's a minister, and he's decided he wrote to, he's decided that he you should politicize the ministry. Because he said, look, they, people have always done this. In the American War for Independence, he, that's what he focuses on. You had what he called the Black Robe Regiment. You had these, 
uh, ministers who were out extolling the virtues of the of the American War for Independence. They were they were preaching it from the church, and you had this in the South too. And of course, the North knew this. this is why Stanton decided to replace all these pro-Southern ministers with pro-pro-Union ones when he could. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, because he understood the power of the church. People would go to church. Now you have to have a Christian people to do this, but people would go to church and they would believe in what the minister would say. And so the power of the pulpit is something we forget how important that is in American society, how important that is overall. Uh, But, and I think this piece on J.L.M. Curry is a a nice uh, explanation of that. Now, on Tuesday, we ran a piece, Remembering Mel Bradford by J.O. Tate's book review of Clyde Wilson's The Defender of Southern Conservatism. It's a wonderful book. It's published in 1999. Um, it is a fantastic collection of essays about Mel Bradford, but not just about Mel Bradford. And if you don't know who Mel Bradford was, he's one of the, if you look at the post-agrarian period, and I say the post-agrarian, the post-12 Southerners, when I'll take my stand, and then you had uh, a number of the people. Now, Bradford was one of their students. And of the, of the 12 uh, Southerners, he was one of the 12 Southerners' uh, students, Cleanth Brooks. Um, and so... When you look at that continuation, of course, you had Richard Weaver in that group. We've, we've talked a lot about Richard Weaver. But you look at that progression of these people. And Bradford was one of the great figures in, um, in this uh, post-agrarian period. And he's someone that is uh, almost forgotten now. But for a time, Bradford was one of the most important conservative voices in America. Not just in the South, but in America. And he was actually considered for a prestigious position in the Reagan administration, but yet his name was was rescinded, his nomination was rescinded because Bill Bennett found out that he wrote some disparaging things about Abraham Lincoln. I mean, this is how stupid the neoconservatives are. You, they, they follow the same tactics of the left. Oh my gosh, we have this guy who doesn't agree with everything. He doesn't, he doesn't like Lincoln. Well, we can't have that individual doing anything. We have to, we have to get rid of that guy. Because he has, uh, he has a, a, an opinion that's outside the realm of acceptable thought. We can't do that. So, here you have an individual that would have gotten a very prestigious position in the general government. Not allowed to have it because he doesn't like Abraham Lincoln. Or he wrote critical things about Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it's how, it's how silly. It's, it's Orwellian again. It's Orwellian. But this is the con- quote-unquote conservatives who are doing this. It's not the left. I mean, look, the Southern tradition is under attack from both sides. It's, it's that, w- that way all the time. We might agree with some, with, uh, some of these quote-unquote people on the right, quote, on the right, um, who, you know, Victor Davis Hanson and, uh, for example, or maybe Dinesh D'Souza, we might agree with them on some things. I mean, they say they say correct things sometimes, but their their vilification of the South is problematic because it it creates a situation where they can't back up anything they believe. The South was the conservative section, even outside of the, of uh, when you look at well, I mean, of course it was because they were all racist down there. Well, there were, look, America was racist. Okay, everyone in America, you would find very few people that weren't in the 19th century. That's, that's a silly position to say. But the principles uh, of uh, tradition, honor, loyalty, courage, federalism, these are things that the South held on to longer 
Christianity, a respect for all of these things, a respect for ancestral customs. This is the South. That's the South. And so when you demonize the South, you're demonizing the, the very uh, pillars that are holding up your, your position of conservatism in America. But these people don't see it because conservatism is just an idea. It's all people are, all people are created equal. And I say people because that's what they th- all people are created equal. It's the proposition nation. It doesn't fit. You're basically buying into the leftist narrative of America. We're going to have a great essay on this um, next week. And the importance of that by John Devaney. So I love this essay on, on Mel Bradford. It's really good. If you haven't got, if you don't have that book, now it's, you're going to pay for it. It's, it's pricey now because it's no longer in print. But um, it is just a tremendous book. Um, of course, edited by the great Clyde Wilson. <clears throat> now, um, I mentioned this tourism thing, and I want to I want to jump to Friday's piece very quickly uh, because it's entitled "Driving Through Virginia Part 2. Uh, it's by Brett Moffat, and he talks about all the great places to see in Virginia. Again, tourism in the South is great because of what the South is. Right, it, the things in the South that you can see, and a lot of it has to do, of course, with the war. But there's also so much history in the South that people don't know anything about because we just focus on that four-year period. It's a very important to understand. This is one thing we try to do at the Abbeville Institute quite a lot. It's understand that Southern history is 400 years. It's 400 years. It's not four years. It's 400 years. You look at Southern history and you're talking about the earliest European settlements, not just English, but earliest European settlements in North America. You're talking about Florida and Louisiana and Alabama, and Texas. You're talking about, of course, Jamestown. But you look at uh, the settlements in Florida. you got St. Augustine. The very first attempt was in Pensacola, Florida. It didn't last, but you had it. You've got Mobile. Um, you've got New Orleans. You're in, of course, Jamestown, 1607. But your two earliest European, permanent European settlements are St. Augustine and Jamestown. So, I mean, this is, this is the vital part that the South plays in the American experience. In Virginia, the Old Dominion, the grand old state, I mean, how much of American history would be different without Virginia? So this is why I love that he, he, he drives through Virginia and all the great history in Virginia. That's not just Confederate history, but, of course, American history. And Confederacy is part of America. I mean, we, we look at it somehow as kind of an alien thing, but it was the Confederate states of America. These were Americans. They weren't something else. They believed they were fighting for the principles of the founding generation. This is what they firmly believed. They said it over and over again. Northerners said the same thing, but Southerners certainly said these things. And so uh, this is where people love to come to the South to, to look at these things. They love to go to the South to, to celebrate Southern history and the traditional South. This, these, are, these are things that are, that are important to them. And so tourism is a vital part of the Southern economy. I mean, Charleston, how many people go to Charleston? Williamsburg. That's what it's all about. I mean, I, when I was in Pensacola uh, a few weeks back, about a month ago, I took a little tour. They, they have the old buildings there in Pensacola. You can go, they've, they've, they've really done a nice job with preserving a, a part of Pensacola uh, that is um, it's the historic part. 
And um, they have a wonderful little local museum. There was the Wentworth Museum and uh, some interesting artifacts. They have an anchor from the De Luna expedition in 1558, which is just cool to see. I mean, you've got this anchor for one of those original ships sitting there in the museum. Uh, they also have Mallory's, Stephen Mallory's uh, flute, uh, his, his uh, walking cane, which had a sword in it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, but they've got that part of it. And they're not, they're not shy about the, the uh, Confederate history of Pensacola. They're not shy about the Spanish history of Pensacola or the French history of Pensacola. They're not shy about any of that stuff. Uh, and, of course, they have these homes. But when I went on the tour, every single person there on that tour was from the North. Every single one. They were all from outside the South. Southerners take all this stuff for granted. It's also, uh, Pensacola is also where John Wesley Harden was finally uh, captured. Uh, interestingly enough, he was uh, from Alabama, but, you know, the great outlaw John Wesley Harden, I say great, I mean infamous. Uh, infamous, uh, John Wesley Harden's an, an interesting story because he became an outlaw because of Reconstruction, um, essentially. That's what happened. And he, if you read his memoirs, he's very anti-Yankee. It's pretty funny. Uh, but Pensacola has a lot of history, but everyone there, they were there to view the history. They're from outside, they're from, they're from the North somewhere. And they all were, and they all had, you know, funny accents, you know, Wisconsin and, and, uh, you know, somewhere up, uh, somewhere else in, uh, up, up North. I can't remember now. Was, most of them are from the Midwest. I think Pennsylvania was one of them, but they, they, they were all from around that area. And, uh, don't you know, uh, this is an interesting thing we got here. Don't you know? And it was, it was hilarious. But people come to the South to see this kind of history. They don't have that stuff where they're from. And so you went in these old houses, these antebellum homes, and they talked about it. And, Ooh, this is so neat, because we don't have this. In other words, their history is boring. It's boring. Southern history is exciting. Their history is boring. This is why we don't have Northern Studies programs. We should. We should have Northern Studies, because the North is the, is the weird other. right? They're, they're the strange section. We shouldn't, I mean, the South was America, the South is America. I mean, this is this, the way that people viewed America was the South. You have these Chinese tourists. We love, I mean, Robert E. Lee, that's America. That's America. Um, now, of course, it's the New York Yankees, I guess. Was, uh, I had a, had a student who was in the uh, military, and he says, everywhere in the Middle East, people have New York Yankees hats on. <laughs> uh, New York Yankees. So um, I guess that's, the, that's America now. Uh, but it was always for a long time. It was Robert E. Lee was you know was a Southern tradition. This is what people recognize. George Washington. Um, so I love this piece for that, and of course you can read it. And then of course the uh, the last piece of the week is is an interesting piece. It's written by Michael Martin. It's about Harry Truman, and Michael Martin's going to be speaking at our summer school on the Dixiecrats. And so he brings that in at the end of the piece. He talks about Truman, and it was just kind of this push in the 1950s to, to think of America as a democracy and not a federal republic, and that, that was filtered into the U.S. Army Soldier's Guide, uh, whereas the, 19, um, the earlier Soldier's Guide, uh, what was the year he had it here? From, from uh, uh, da, 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 I'm trying to find it. Uh, I can't find it. 1920s. Um, the earlier Soldier's 1928 manual. Uh, so here we have, in just a couple of decades, we've gone from the Soldier's Guide saying that the United States is a democracy. The 1928 Guide said this, Our constitutional fathers, familiar with the strength and weaknesses of both autocracy and democracy, with fixed principles definitely in mind, de de defined a representative Republican form of government. 
They made a very marked distinction between a republic and a democracy and said repeatedly and emphatically that they had founded a republic. But in 1952, this is what the soldier's guy said. Because the United States is a democracy, the majority of the people decide how our government will be organized and run. And that includes the Army, Navy, and Air Force. The people do this by electing representatives, and these men and women can carry out the wishes of the people. So it's a democracy now. Well, what changed? Nothing changed, but this is we gets into how Tr Truman was interested in a one-world government idea, yeah, the creation of the UN. Uh, and so he's saying that, what, did Harry Truman actually commit treason? Is this a violation of American sovereignty? I mean, it's a question. I think it's a little conspiratorial. But the fact is, we did have a shift in the 1950s in the context of the Cold War and a move away from American sovereignty to something else. And we're seeing the, the fruit of that now. But he brings up the fact that in 1948, this is what the Dixiecrats were also against. And he quotes from their platform, the 1948 Dixie States Rights Democrats platform. And it says this, quote, we oppose the totalitarianism, centralized bureaucratic government, and the police nation called for by the platforms adopted by the Democrat and Republican conventions. We favor home rule, local self-government, and a minimum interference with individual rights. We oppose the usurpation of legislative functions by the executive and judicial departments. We reservedly condemn the effort to establish in the United States a police nation that would destroy the last vestige of liberty enjoyed by a citizen. So they're pointing out that part of the problem with both parties is that we're looking, we're creating a centralized American totalitarian despotism. This is 1948. And so you had individuals who you wouldn't think were Dixiecrats. The Jewish libertarian, New York Jewish libertarian Murray Rothbard supported the Dixiecrats. And he wrote to Strom Thurmond, he said, look, there are millions of Americans who would flock to your banner. They are weary of being led by the nose by the New Deal politicians of both parties. They are tired of being deprived of their votes because there is no anti-socialist and pro-liberty party to which they can turn. H.L. Mencken sympathized with the Dixiecrats. So did Robert Frost, the poet laureate of the United States. Robert Frost sympathized with the Dixiecrats and supported them privately. A lot of people did because they looked at that position. It wasn't about race to them. It was about something else. It was about the principles that, hey, we've got an oppressive central government and no one's standing up to that. We've got an entire transformation in America, and no one's standing up to that. So the Dixiecrats were seen by people north and south as a way to oppose this centralization of America. So this, he's going to get into this in more detail in our summer school. So if you want to go to the summer school, it's a great plug for that. You can talk about it. Uh, we can talk about it there. So there's there's more context. There's more things to, to get out of Southern history than just race and slavery. And I think that's something we try to do at the Institute and say, well, look, is there something else going on here? Uh, yeah, you've got, you know, this. It's, uh, it, was, it was painted as a pro-segregation group, and certainly they talked a lot about segregation. But there's something else to it, too. Is there something else we can pull out of that? What is, what is true, what is valuable that we can pull out of the 1948 states' rights Democrats? What else, could, what else is there? And that's something that we, we can look at that one part of, that, of their uh, platform and say, well, there it is. I mean, they're, they're, they're afraid of this, and you have these other people. Uh, Murray Rothbard and H.L. Mencken and, and uh, Robert Frost, who were saying, I mean, they, well, gosh, there's something to this. So I hope you enjoyed this week and review at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day.